they're saying, oh, it's red and swollen, must be cellulitis, instead of actually like putting together the history and the physical. Right. That's well said, Stuart. Yeah, you're welcome. I said it well. <laughs> now drop the mic and moonwalk out the door. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matt. Hello, Stuart. Hi. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge for your brain hole. Yes, for your brain hole. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> and Dr. Paul Williams. <laughs> hey, fellas. How are you? I'm doing great, Paul. How you doing? Thanks for asking. Mm. <laughs> Paul, I'd like to read you an email. I'm not sure if you, you saw it come come through our email box here, but this is from Andy. I think you're the only one that has access to that box, Matt. Well, I, I send them to you guys. I know that. And Andy How do I know it's, and that I you're not read. editing it? Andy says, heh, love the podcast. Makes my commute to and from work better, less depressing than listening to the world news. Not sure how you guys can keep up the energy. Wonderful. <laughs> We're less to depressing do all than of news. This, but in any case, thanks. You're you're welcome, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy, uh, Andy did say one quick question. Since you guys are doing such a good job about the pearls and learning objectives, is there any future hope for CME credits? Keep up the good work. The partners in my practice are slowly migrating away from listening to NPR and now listening <laughs> to you guys. <laughs> so we're better than the take news. that Ira Glass in your face. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, someone's answer- sticking it to NPR. <laughs> oh, and to to answer the question about the CME credits, it is a goal of mine to to make this happen at some point in the future. I'm not sure how difficult it's going to be, and I will spare you the boring details. But I will be looking into it this summer once I get settled back. It sounds in, like boring details in Pennsylvania. Okay, We're all right, that's all I'll say. You're hey welcome, guys, Andy. let's oh, give some picks of the week. <laughs> okay, hey Matt. Yes, Williams, do you have any picks of the week? <laughs> <laughs> did you just coin Williams? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> okay. All right. Williams, Paul. Sorry, what's happening? Paul, I, can we get yes, your pick of I the have, week? I have picks of the week. Absolutely. I'm going to give you a trifecta. So I happen to see three amazing live music shows over the past month. So I guess my initial pick is to get in a time machine, go back a month and come to Philadelphia. But I saw the three bands that I, I, I saw were Charlie Bliss, which is a, a fantastic power pop band that is going to be sort of on the, the best of list for this year. I got to see uh, the band Baroness, which is a heavy metal band, um, which put on a spectacular show. And then also I got to see just, was it last night? I think it was Royal Blood play, which also was, again, a spectacular show. So I would recommend, you know, going and seeing those shows, which is now impossible. Um, but I would maybe advocate for at least checking those artists out and then also just supporting live music anytime you get the chance um it's if you're a fan at all it's just it's it's worth pursuing that experience if you don't do it um and i, I think that'll be my recommendation for this week sounds like a trifecta all right are is this band or are, are these bands touring places other than philadelphia area where people I think can it's see exclusively them? in paul's backyard <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's I, say I, our I don't know let's um, say some of our listeners don't live in a awesome hipster paradise of well i won't say too too specifically where you live paul but uh is there (laughs) (laughs) is there is there hope for people to see these bands elsewhere 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're they're all doing sort of large city tours. I would imagine. Um, if I've not looked up other cities because I frankly don't care, but I, if, if you don't have the chance, to at least go see them. I would support your local music scene, and then also um, now with music being so readily available, just chase those bands down specifically on, on whatever format that you like. Stuart, yeah. what what would you like to recommend to the audience? Well, Matt, do you know the Onion? Do you know what that is? I I've heard of the Onion. Yeah, Paul, do you know what the Onion is? I am familiar with their work. Yes. Wonderful. So, boy, do, got, do I have a pick for you guys. It's called Gomer Blog. G-O-M-E-R blog.com. It has very high-quality, high-class news. With uh, Well, I can just read just a, cu- a couple of the, the highlights from their main page. Uh, see, one article says, Maroon 5 admitted to hospital with five maroon stools. <laughs> Another one is, uh, new ventilator attachment safely allows smoking while receiving oxygen. Very important. Another one is, uh, new eject button expedites ED discharges. <laughs> so... It's a uh, high-quality, high-class uh, news organization that provides uh, news that's kind of geared towards the medical professional. Give it, a, give it a go. I think it's worthwhile. Wonderful. Very helpful. Uh, I hope you all will <laughs> take that and run with it. I, I, do, with it. I, I do follow them on Twitter. It's a, it's, a good, it's a very good Twitter feed to follow in between whatever else is on there. It's, it's very entertaining. Absolutely. I am going to uh, allow your picks of the week to stand. I, I'm sure I could think of something, but right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'll give one next time. We should probably have the audience vote on the best pick of the week. <laughs> okay. Well, on this episode, our guest was Dr. John M. Sweet, <laughs> and he gave a great pick of the week, so I feel that I don't need to. Mm. Dr. Sweet is an associate professor of medicine at Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine. Sorry if I pronounced mm. that wrong. It's okay. Take three. <laughs> At, at Virginia Tech, he served as the interim chair for the Department of Medicine from May 2015 to May 2016 and was the program director of the, of the Virginia Tech Carilion Internal Medicine Residency from 2007 to 2011. He has won numerous awards for teaching and in March 2016 received the prestigious Laureate Award from the American College of Physicians, which is, quote, Presented to the longstanding and loyal supporters of the college who have rendered distinguished service to their chapters and community and have upheld the high ideals and professional standards for which the ACP is known. And I imagine because of such behavior, Dr. Sweet was invited to give a highlight talk along with Dr. Alan Dow and one other presenter this year at ACP to recap some of the highlights from the conference. This episode is Really, we talk about derm, we talk about general internal medicine, a little bit of mm-hmm. cards, a little bit of pulmonary, a lot of quick cl- clinical pearls, and we also talk, uh, get to know Dr. Sweet a little bit. It's quite sweet. And uh, yeah, he's a sweet guy. That's right. <laughs> so with all that said, I hope you enjoy this talk <laughs> with Dr. John M. Sweet. And it is better than NPR. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I think we can kind of just just break into things here. Sure. And uh, and the first the first question I always like to do is if you had to describe yourself on rounds as in a in a one liner, what would it be? Yeah, so it's like the uh, first day of the rotate rotation introductions, huh? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I am a forty nine year old father of three outstanding kids, uh, only one of whom is still in the house. I've uh, been married for almost 25 years to the most amazing woman I've ever known. And I'm an amateur gentleman forester when I'm not playing general internist as my day job. 
And what what do you mean by an amateur <laughs> gentleman forester? That's a, that's an interesting so, answer. Yeah, so we we acquired about fifty acres of land just a couple miles from our residence uh, a few years ago, and it's wooded. And I've um, I've taken an interest in trying to be a good steward and um, uh, just kind of cultivator of the land. I think you know periodically we'll harvest some trees and we're cutting some trails with the ATVs, and um, that has really been my my vocational passion. Um, in the past couple of years, I spent a lot of time up there. I can actually see the property from my house. It looks up on a place called Mount Chestnut and it's just like heaven to me. Uh, I have two things to say about that. Number one, there's been several articles that I've read in the past year or two, just kind of talking about being in the woods is one of the best things you can do for yourself just as far as wellness goes, because we don't even realize how much we're being bombarded by all the technology around it and, and all that. And then number two is my father-in-law does the same exact thing in, but okay. he's, he's going to central Pennsylvania to do this. But it, I think it's probably the same mountains and, you know, the, the other, just the other end of them. So he yeah, is, it is just amazing. It, it just resets things in general and it's so close and it uh our property borders uh, a vineyard called Valhalla Vineyard so um you know right outside of my wooded property I can you know look through a clear of trees and see you know a few hundred acres of of vineyard and uh, on Friday and Saturday night they have some events out there in the pavilion the music wafts down and it's just it's just gorgeous yeah maybe make friends with the vineyard too and see if you can (laughs) score yourself some free wine the uh, the vineyard is actually owned by a uh, a, a longtime retired neurosurgeon from Roanoke, so uh, he apparently did quite well. Okay. Uh, the next question I wanted to ask you about, it, whether it's locally or nationally, what is what would you say it's that you're best known for as a physician? Sure. Well, I most certainly do not have a national reputation, so this one is is easier. But in um, in recent years, I seem to have developed a bit of a gig with the state ACP chapter, where I highlight a number of papers from the previous year that have changed or informed the way I practice. And I've actually done this several times recently with Alan Dow, who you mentioned, you know, from the previous show. He's at Virginia Commonwealth University, and. Um, it's, it's something that keeps me fresh. Uh, like you, it helps me roll out some of that information to the residents and students with whom I work. And um, I'm probably just a sucker who says yes every year, um, but it's been a lot of fun. And uh, it's probably going to sound to the audience like I knew you were going to answer that way, but I actually had no idea. That's So that's how, that's how we're having you on the show, of course, to do this, but I didn't realize that this was something that you were doing on an annual basis. So that's that's very cool. And And I agree with you. It is it can be very rewarding to it. First of all, it forces you to read and then and, and keep up on things. Right. And then second of all, you get to pay it forward to everybody. And right. most people are usually pretty happy if, if you're doing the work for them. So, yeah, well, I think, you know, the difference is when I do that with the Virginia ACP, I'm the one kind of culling through the articles mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, make sense of it all. Whereas at the national ACP meeting, um, Alan and I and, and uh, the other partner that we had, we were just kind of frantically running from room to room trying to soak in as much stuff as we could. And then we had, you know, about an hour to throw some slides together. So that was it was it was a different take, but I guess similar, similar concept. Okay, to to switch gears a little bit before we get into what you learned at ACP, I wanted to ask you, 
any uh, recommendations you have, you can either recommend a book or an app, something that you think would be helpful to the audience. Mm. Well, I, I've listened to a number of your recent podcasts, and I don't recall if, if these have been mentioned, but um, I, I'm thinking about Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. Has, has that been mentioned on the show no. before? No, it hasn't. Really? Have you had a chance to read that book? No, I, I have it saved to a, a list of ebooks, but I, I have not read wow. it yet. But maybe okay. I'll bump it up in the list here. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's as a general internist uh, that is incredibly apt, applicable applicable to our practice. Uh, you know, both outpatient and in. And on a personal note, um, with my age and the age of a lot of my colleagues is we actually have the opportunity to use some of Gawande's knowledge to have discussions with our parents in addition to our patients. Um, so he has a way of framing things with some key questions to ask so we can really try to know what our patients value and what's important for them and what's important for them to avoid that is just gold. Um, and so that, that, I thought that was going to be kind of a trite answer, but I'm, I'm glad that no one has said that. No. And that would have been, uh, we, we did a, a palliative hospice and palliative mm-hmm. care episode recently and that, and, and you're talking being mortal in that sense and, and the scripts that he's giving you how to bring up these conversations or, right. yeah. okay, that's, that's yeah. very good. That's a good lead then. Thank you for that. Okay. Uh, another question. What is some great advice you've received somewhere throughout your career that you found helpful, either as a learner or as a teacher? Hmm. Um, I'll, I'll give you a couple, I guess, or maybe one of each. So as a learner, um, and this is kind of applicable to some of this, the gig that we were talking about with some of the, the academic endeavors that we pursue is, is to read something every day. Um, it doesn't have to be long, but it has to be something, <laughs> and, and that can really help. And and I see that for the occasional um, student or resident that we have that might struggle with the fund of knowledge issue, is they just haven't figured that out, um, or or they're not reading smartly for those you know five, ten, twenty minutes. So I think that's very helpful. And as a teacher, um, I think it's important to think out loud. Uh, invite everybody to participate and uh, make sure that everybody knows, uh, including the teacher, that it's it's OK to say, I don't know. Um, and that can also that can help the trainees figure out when you are saying something that you can you know, back up and share more details about. And when, you know, the team might have a clinical question that we need to investigate so we can you know, teach each other the next day on rounds or at our next morning report. Yeah, I think this this question is is almost always my favorite because we we usually get pretty different answers and mm. and I think it's just I think it's just really helpful certainly something that I'm kind of dedicating myself to uh, both being a learner and and trying to be a better teacher. So it's it's always good to get those answers. I I want to move on now into kind of the general topics and we can kind of see where this takes us, but you highlighted a couple things from general internal medicine. You had some dermatology stuff in your talk, some, mm-hmm. some cardiology and pul- pulmonary. So I, I think what, what we haven't talked much about on the show was dermatology. And okay. uh, I, I'm not sure, and probably because it's a, an audio podcast and dermatology is, <laughs> is mostly a visual medium, but I think we could probably pull out some points from your talk here that were sure. that would be helpful to the audience. So I noticed one of your slides was mentioning topical terbinafine as kind of like the cure-all for tinea. 
<laughs> is there was there a reason or an article that prompted that slide and and why was yeah, that so being that was, pointed out? That was from uh, Dr. Newman did a section on her clinical pearls and and I was kind of taken by that too. Um, I guess I I grew up using topical azoles and that's just a, a habit that's been hard to break. But she was making the argument that for the normal bugs that cause cutaneous tinnias, you know, these are the, the trichophytans and whatnot, that the allylamines, like terbinafine, they're fungicidal, whereas the topical azoles are generally fungistatic versus, um, you know, the usual organisms that cause cutaneous tinnias. So that sounded brilliant. Um, and I think she's a dermatologist, I believe at Mayo. So I tend to believe her. That's, um, that so sounds like a credible source. I, exactly. Well, and it, it makes some sense from a pharmacologic standpoint yeah. too. And I, I think she made a point to talk about, you know, the trichophyton species. We're not talking about, um, you know, other fungal organisms that cause other, you know, syndromes. We're talking about, you know, tinea cruris, tinea corpus, corporis, or tinea pettis. Okay. And did she talk at all about nail infections? Because we we commonly get this question from right. patients, and we we joked about it on our most recent episode using the uh, Vicks Vapor Rub, which uh, mm-hmm. I've been told at least cosmetic. I've had some patients have at least had a cosmetic result there, where the some of the discoloration or some of the kind of flaking went away. But I'm not sure. I think there was only been very small trials for that. Yeah, and and she in her update she did not make that comparison between what. Uh, types of medications might be the best. And so she didn't talk about onychomycosis. She didn't talk about tinea capitis, for example. There may be some exceptions there. She just she just stuck to the skin. And I think your your population at, at good old Cashlac is probably similar to mine in that, you know, most of my patients neither need or would be interested in, you know, prolonged systemic therapy for their funky toenails. You know, there'd be the occasional young or middle-aged woman that might have some cosmetic reasons to do it so she can, you know, wear her sandals and all that stuff during the summer. But when it's uh, when it's our pleasant elderly man with grunge foot, that's really, <laughs> you know, who, who does not have a, a history of recurrent cellulitis, um, probably just let that one go. And, and speaking of cellulitis, the other thing, there was an article in Derm, uh, JAMA Dermatology, February 2017, that, and, and an editorial accompanying it, that, that we're talking about this misdiagnosis of cellulitis. Mm-hmm. So my main question here is, were there points offered, like, how can we avoid the misdiagnosis? Yeah, I think, so first of all, it is a, it's a huge problem, and it, it's a problem outpatient, inpatient, in the ED, and it's it's a problem at some of our marquee, you know, institutions around the country. Um, one of the, um, the talks I went to was not part of the update that I included. Let's see, her name is uh, Daniela Krasinski. Um, she's from Harvard. She gave a couple of talks, and um, she's actually a bit of an expert uh, she's written probably a couple of the articles that you may have come across talking about the the overdiagnosis of cellulitis, and and she's gotten together with some of her colleagues at places like uh, UCSF and UCLA and University of Alabama Birmingham, and these guys know what they're doing. And and Krasinski, she heads up the inpatient dermatology consultative service at Mass General, and even at Mass General, when they looked at their data, they had about a that the people who were admitted through the ED at Mass General 
had about a 30% misdiagnosis rate of cellulitis, you know, as adjudicated by Dr. Krasinski and her, um, and her inpatient dermatology consult team. So think of what it's like for the rest of us. And <laughs> there's a lot of other information out there about how those, those misdiagnosis rates can be much higher. So I think the main thing is for us to realize that not everything that gives you a red hot leg is cellulitis. And um, it's probably worth mentioning that almost all cellulitis starts rather acutely, is unilateral, and responds pretty promptly to a rational antibiotic. So if your patient doesn't obey all three of those rules, you probably ought to take a step back and, and ask yourself, what else? What else could this be? So if it, if it starts subacutely or if there's bilaterality to it or it's really not doing much after a couple of days of antibiotics, you probably don't have the right answer. And so you need to go back to the differential and see what this might be. And uh, I, I can... I can tell you, I see, I see a lot of this where, where it's misdiagnosed, we'll get called from the e- ER on the inpatient side and we'll go down and it's bilateral, circumferential, mildly warm, but not tender. Mm-hmm. And they're, they've already started the patient on vancomycin right. or something. Welcome to your venous stasis dermatitis. Exactly. Right. <laughs> the, the main, and, and for the listeners, the main things that were listed in the differential, DVT would be one of them, defane thrombosis, an uh, in, in inflammatory venous stasis dermatitis could do it. Uh, some sort of allergy or irritant dermatitis would be the other common things that could, could cause this. And mm-hmm. But it it is challenging. I mean, and they 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 even made the point in one of the editorials that even a skin biopsy is still it's not a hundred percent. It's not like a binary thing. Like there's still some room for error there. So they yeah. they were arguing that a dermatologist is the gold standard. And the main thing I took away from this is I don't think I've ever consulted a dermatologist for a cellulitis at least not an acute one, maybe one that seems to be hanging around after like 30 days of antibiotics right. and patients been kicked around through. Yeah, because that's not going to be cellulitis for 30 right. days. I, I saw a couple of patients recently, um, One of, and, and these diagnoses were easy to make in the ER, even though they were kind of weird. But both of them had a similar story in that both of them had had several courses of oral antibiotics in the previous month prior to showing up to the ER. So you know straight up that's not going to be cellulitis. One guy had a stable CKD4, and he had calciphylaxis, which is not a common mimicker, but it happens. And then the other lady had a great case of pyoderma gangrenosum, and she was actually being followed by a wound care clinic out of town. Um, So so even us general internists can, when, when something doesn't work, Go back to the differential diagnosis, work it, and see if it applies to your patient. And and the last thing I would say is, and consider a dermatology consult if you have right. one available in a reasonable right. time frame. Yeah, and I think that there's probably a lot of variability depending on on your listeners. I know I'm I'm very happy that we started up a derm residency three or four years ago, and so now getting inpatient dermatology consults is easy. Um, in fact, with that case of calciphylaxis, you know, we saw him in the ER, we wanted a confirmatory opinion that came over during lunch hour and boom, um, you know, we got that guy actually, unlike some of the data, our patient needed to be in the hospital. He never saw an antibiotic, which was awesome, but he did, he commenced dialysis. We started something called thiosulfate and, and he actually did pretty darn well for a guy with calciphylaxis. 
I I was thinking about moving on to the the dermatologic emergencies. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that'll play over uh, over the podcast medium? I I know. I mean, I can certainly link to pictures of them, but were there? Yeah. You know, I think to me, be, so, so Matt, I practice these days. I, I am, I'm really, even though I'm a general internist at, at heart, I'm an, I'm a practicing hospitalist. I have students and residents with me at all times. So mm-hmm. we actually see, um, a couple of these, you know, dermatologic emergencies quite frequently yet every time we do, it seems like the residents and students get all bug eyed because they, they haven't really heard much about it. So I think it's, there's a couple of pearls that we might be able to, to suss out of there. Uh, and then your listeners can quickly find some pictures, but I think as long as they know that these things exist, I think they'll, they'll be pointed in the right direction when they're confronted with a patient. Okay. And I'll, I'll point the listeners for, and I'll link to this of course, but the DermNet New Zealand, it's called uh-huh. DermNet NZ. That that's yeah. a website that I've just found, and I've used it to make dermatology talks before. It, sure, they have some great pictures on there. Yeah, and and if if your listeners simply you know Google dress or AJEP, um, you know there'll be a million hits on any you know any browser. So mm-hmm. it, it'll be easy for them to find some pictures to kind of corroborate what we're talking about. Now these four dermatologic emergencies. You uh, can you tell us a little bit about them and wh- and what you think we we need to know about them? I think that was Dr. Uh, Selby talked about some of the derm emergencies, and so he talked about dress, something called AGEP, AGEP. Talked about erythroderma and and Stephen Johnson's and TEN. I, I think your listeners are probably more familiar with Stephen Johnson's and TEN, and maybe less so with the acute generalized exanthematous pustulosis and dress, which are the ones that I see a lot more commonly. I haven't seen a TEN in a few years, thank goodness. But, um, you know, probably at least every other month, I'll see a case of either dress or AGEP in the hospital. So um, I w- a couple of things are reinforced by, by that talk. And one is, so there's this thing called AGEP. And the name is really helpful. It kind of tells you what you're dealing with. It's acute. It's generalized. It starts out with a red rash. So there's your exanthem. And then it quickly develops into to tiny little pustules. So the name says everything. And because of the timing of the rash relative to when the medication was started and the absolutely characteristic look of this rash, um, if you know that it exists, you're done. So... AGEP almost always starts within two to three days of starting the new culprit medicine. And it could be a, you know, a penicillin or a sulfa antibiotic or uh, calcium channel blockers are kind of common on that list as well. Um, But it's usually not a big surprise because your patients can remember, you know, what new medicines they've started in the last three or four days. And, um, you know, they feel mildly unwell. There may be a low-grade fever. Uh, and, and this rash starts out primarily in the flexural areas. So, you know, near the axilla, the antecubital fossa, under the breast. And you, you might see them in the morning, and there's just some erythema. And you think, that's kind of weird, you know, both antecubital fossa, both armpits. And then you get called back later in the afternoon or certainly no later than the next morning. And if you look real closely you'll see just this eruption of these tiny pinpoint one to two millimeter non-follicular pustules. 
So they're, they're tiny enough, you know, at one or two millimeters that you're not going to see them from five or six feet away, you know? So if you're the attending on rounds, you're going to have to, you know, mosey on up to the patient. But then when you get close, you, you can just see all those little white dots and they're not associated with the hair follicle. Um, so you basically have your diagnosis. You know, they started diltiazem two days ago for their AFib. And this morning they had a funky rash, but you thought it was maybe like a heat rash. But now they have, you know, these generalized non-follicular pustules. That person has AGEP. They'll do fine. You stop the diltiazem and then just give them some, you know, local dermatologic care. So it's some emollients. And you can use a mid-potency topical corticosteroid like triamcinolone and they'll do great. So that's kind of a... Uh, you know, a T-cell mediated reaction of the skin alone. And a follow-up question for that. It, so they, they get diltiazem, they get this rash. Are they done with diltiazem for the rest of their life? Is that, do you know the answer? They should be. Okay. Yeah, it is, it is a T-cell mediated reaction. So, um, so it'll come back. Now it won't kill them because AGEP is, it's a nuisance. Um, but, but yeah, you shouldn't, you should add that to the allergy list because it's a legitimate, it's not an IgE mediated reaction, but it is a T cell mediated reaction. Okay. So now with dress though, that's the one where you really, really don't want to challenge them. So you, again, you got to know that dress exists. The clinical presentation is very stereotypical, but unfortunately the cutaneous manifestations are quite variable. It can, you know, one person can look like diffuse erythroderma. The other person can look like they got a bad case of erythema multiforme. The other person can have kind of this eczematous dermatitis. So, so that's not where you're going to get lucky. You're going to get lucky by the time course of the medicine. So here we're usually talking about a month or so, not two to three days like AGEP, but this is, this takes some time. And there's a few key clinical things. Uh, so, so dress is drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. Almost everybody has a low-grade fever or even you know, a little bit more impressive temperature. Facial edema is a key finding. Um, most patients have very obvious facial edema. And when you see that combination of some cutaneous reaction, facial edema, low-grade fever. Now you have to start looking for some other organ involvement. Your, your eyes should first go to their, to their transaminases because the clear majority have elevated liver enzymes. And you're, you're pretty much going to cinch the diagnosis with that. Um, a lot of people will have AKI due to interstitial nephritis. And then some other people can get some other organ manifestations that are much less common. But facial edema, started a new medicine a month ago, low-grade fever, bump in the AST, ALT, maybe even a little AKI, that's dress. And you need to know it because if you continue the drug, they're going to be in for a world of hurt. Um, and I had a patient, um, she was admitted to the hospital four or five days prior to my assuming her care when there was a changeover on the service. She was admitted with um, with the the concern for sepsis. She had a fever. Uh, she was ill. She had some respiratory insufficiency with some pulmonary infiltrates that required intubation, bumping her creatinine, bumping her liver enzymes. You know, they cultured her up like all the residents do. They put her on cefepime and vancomycin like all our residents do. And um, she was admitted to the ICU and she didn't get better one bit. In fact, she got a little bit worse every day. Cultures never grew out anything from any source. 
And in fact, on, on Thursday, the, the day before I assumed the care of the patient, the team had the talk with the husband. And, um, you know, they were talking about transitioning to a just to a palliative, you know, comfort care only approach. They, they weren't quite ready for that. Um, so I come in on, on Friday morning and I see this gal who she's African-American, very darkly pigmented skin. But you could still see that she had some faint erythema throughout. And she had she had had this for so many days now, five or six days, that she had this kind of mild superficial desquamation from head to toe oh my because of this, this skin inflammation that had been going on that no one really picked up on. She had a little bit of eosinophilia. Um, she had very significant AKI. Creatinine was up in like three and a half or four range. And her uh, about one month prior, she was admitted to the hospital for recurrent seizures. She was put on carbamazepine. After taking a step back on Friday morning, we identified that this is almost certainly dress, stopped the carbamazepine, started some steroids, got the skin biopsy, which confirmed that, you know, this was a drug reaction. And, you know, a few days later, she was off the vent and a few days later, she went home. So dress, dress is not quite as dramatic as TEN. But it, it can hurt you bad and it can be fatal. And um, when you treat with steroids, you're going to treat with oral corticosteroids, usually starting at a decent dose, say 40 to 60 milligrams for the first couple, three weeks. And then a, a slow taper over another several weeks to a month or so, you know, kind of seeing how they're doing, monitoring, you know, their their fevers, their liver enzymes, their AKI, if they had that to start. Uh, and then never, ever can they get that type of a medicine again. In fact, if someone developed dress to something like carbamazepine, um, I would I would avoid all the old school kind of aromatic uh, anti-epileptics like phenytoin or barbiturates as well. Wow. I think you did a great job making these uh, the dermatology play on the air. I'm, I'm impressed. That was a, that was a great case, too. Uh, well, it's I've. Uh, w- when I had that lady in the hospital with the carbamazepine induced dress at the same time, we had a lady with dress due to allopurinol. Now, unfortunately, the lady who had allopurinol related dress, she was started on allopurinol about a month prior um, for asymptomatic hyperuricemia by her primary physician. Oh, she boy. had never had a history of gout. Yeah, oh boy. But fortunately, she did well. Again, she had a she had a fever. She had a bump in her LFTs. She had eosinophilia. No creatinine problems. And for her, again, the facial this lady was was Caucasian, um, and she had this. She looked like an oompa loompa. Her face was totally swollen. She had this eczematous dermatitis, and then the rest of her body was really more of an erythema multiforme. She had the best targets you've ever seen. So, but still, it was it was the drug. It was the timing and it was all the associated things. And again, a, a skin biopsy on her was confirmatory for dress. So she did fine. Wow. When people have things way out of the ordinary that kind of present like the ordinary, it's it's always going to be a, a problem there. So Yeah. But, you know, the, the fail safe is kind of like the person with cellulitis that's not getting better. Mm-hmm. There was a person with, quote unquote, sepsis who was being treated in a very rational way. But she just wasn't getting better. She was right. getting worse. And nothing's being cultured, so it's got it's right. got to start. Alarm bells negative. need to go off. Right. Well, there were a lot of general internal medicine topics that you went through that I think we can probably kind of quickly hit upon. That'll just be some quick 
clinical pearls. One of these yeah. was smoking, smoking cessation. What, what was said about this cold turkey versus gradual smoking cessation? I'll tell you, the classic patient to me says, Doc, I cut way back. I'm down to five cigarettes a day now. They probably smoke each cigarette for like an hour. And, uh, and it, you know, it'll, it'll take a long time for them to get off if they're able to get off. So what, what's this, what was the evidence there? Yeah. So I think there were kind of a lot of one liners from that uh, general medicine, uh, talk, but the, the party line is, I guess there've been a, there was a recent study that looked at kind of a gradual taper with behavioral support as opposed to more of an abrupt, um, cessation. And it was found that those who, you know, ceased abruptly with a nicotine patch as their smoking cessation aid, um, they had a higher abstinence rate, um, I believe at one month and even six months with a number needed to treat between about 10 and 15. So um, I think it just, you know, to me, I didn't take anything um, incredibly away from that, other than the fact that I think we should talk to our patients. And if they're concerned about the possibility of kind of, you know, quitting cold turkey, um, I would try to disavow them of that concern and and maybe support them and share with them that that, that might actually be the way to go. Next, I wanted to ask about Tylenol for acute low back pain, everyone's favorite. Yeah. Acetamin- acetaminophen. I don't want to yes. buzz market Tylenol. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I got to tell you, I was um, disappointed by that study that that looked at acetaminophen, and because it was it was really found to be ineffective uh, for either pain or disability at a variety of endpoints between one and twelve weeks. Because I'm an acetaminophen kind of guy, um, partly because so many of our internal medicine patients are just really not acceptable candidates for NSAIDs of any duration, right? So our, our heart mm-hmm. failure, renal failure, recently had an upper GI bleed type of gal. Um, but the fact of the matter is it, it doesn't look like acetaminophen by itself is effective. Now, there was a, a comment from the speaker that um, I, I, I'm not sure that if anyone's looked at the combination of, say, additive benefit uh, of adding acetaminophen to an EDSED backbone. I think there was kind of a little bit of hope that for some magical reason that might give us a little bit of benefit, but I'm not sure that that's been done yet. He did comment that there are some other trials looking at the addition of other compounds to an NSAID backbone. I shouldn't say backbone, but an NSAID therapy for, <laughs> for, uh, for acute and chronic low back pain. And it looks like compared to naproxen alone, the addition of things like cyclobenzaprine or diazepam or oxycodone to naproxen has no added benefit. So just, you know, kind of an exhortation for us to, to you know, stick with NSAIDs alone for those who are acceptable candidates and are having, you know, pain enough that's not getting better with all the other ACP endorsed non-pharmacologic interventions. Right. And, and this is a good opportunity for the ACP guidelines, which came out February or March of 2017, and they really stress non-pharmacologic management right. for certainly for chronic low back pain and, and, and as part of acute low back pain as well. But there, there's really not great medications, especially for chronic low back pain. And right. the acetaminophen thing, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's like one of the only things that we can give out of a a bunch of pain medications that are not, they all have huge downsides or just right. efficacy that is not quite what we'd like it to be. 
And But the ACP guidelines, I would recommend everyone look at them. You can share them with your patients and say, look, this is our big internal medicine organization. This is an evidence-based guideline. And they're mostly recommending things like Tai Chi and yoga and trials mm-hmm. of acupuncture and physical therapy, it, they're, they're, the medications are really on the second line, at least for chronic back pain. So do you do a lot of Tai Chi and acupuncture at Cash Lack? Um, we actually do a lot of acupuncture. Oh, that's and I, so we, the, uh Let's just say that my soon-to-be former employer uh, <laughs> is is quite is quite into acupuncture okay, and the auricular acupuncture. So the small needles that you can put mm-hmm. in the ear, I'm, I'm credentialed to do that, which is wow. a very simple process. I mean, they, they train, they, they actually train people to do this on the battlefield. So it's like five mm. pins that can be put in anywhere. So a medic could do this. Mm. This can be used for any sort of pain complaint really. And then we do have a couple practitioners, uh, that that do the full body acupuncture. Okay. And uh, if if a patient is asking for acupuncture, what I've learned is if a patient is coming in in pain, asking for acupuncture, saying they've had it before and they believe it's going to work, it's probably going to work. And yeah. and, and if they can afford it. Yeah. Yep. It, so that's that's the thing. I mean, it it, it can. I'm sure it can be pricey. The uh, but the like the auricular acupuncture is is pretty easy to do and quick um and they they actually walk around with the pins in for mm-hmm. 3 to 5 days okay and uh so someone comes in with an acute migraine headache and you can put those in and they might get some relief sure but yeah that that they that is in the in the ACP guidelines i know the evidence on the acupuncture in general is kind of back and forth as to whether it's a, a placebo effect or if it's actually effective. But I, I, I'm certainly, there's a strong placebo undertone to it. Mm-hmm. Heck of a lot safer than oxycodone. Yes. So I'm all for it. Yes. <laughs> another, another thing I, I caught from your, from your slide set was the uh, talking about the different formulations of estrogen for moderate to severe hot mm-hmm. flashes. Yeah. And is this something you're using in your practice? Well, I guess you're a hospitalist now, so you're probably not yeah, starting it. Yeah, these days, but... yeah, I'm not starting it, but it's nice to be aware of, you know, the options that are out there. Of course, you know, you and I both know that for for women who suffer from moderate to severe hot flashes, um, you know, you wouldn't wish that on anybody. And I think a lot of folks have steered completely away from the estrogens, um, you know, for fear of stroke and other adverse outcomes. But um, the speaker did a, a nice job dissecting not only um, kind of the pharmacology of the different estrogen and progestogen preparations, but uh, the literature that that kind of fell on, as far as we know, um, when it comes to uh, stroke risk, there's no known increased risk of stroke associated with the transdermal estrogens or oral micronized progesterone. So when you do have that that person with moderate to severe hot flashes, um, you know those medications uh, would be you know outstanding options because you know the other things that we try for that woman who's really just incapacitated, they're they're not going to be terribly effective short of hormone replacement therapy. 
I I wanted to to revisit something that we talked about with Alan Dow, who you had mentioned earlier. This this iron dosing every other day, and the, and the reason here is because I had a couple listeners email me or reach out to me on Twitter after after that episode, asking the article that came out that we cited in our show notes was from Blood two thousand and fifteen. Mm-hmm. Has is there a more recent trial or is there an ongoing trial? It just seems like it made a splash in 2017, yeah. and and I was just wondering why. I, I think people have been limping into kind of lesser doses and less frequent doses for some time. I think when you when when one reads various review articles, for example, it seems like no two sources have the same recommendation. I I cannot find any other papers that had a lot of traction other than that one Moretti paper that you mentioned from 2015, I have got to think that somebody is studying that, right? Because it's a very clinically relevant question. Of course, this might have to be, you know, funded by, you know, an institution or the NIH, because right. of course there's going to be no pharmacy uh, house that's going to pony up and, and fund this type of a, a trial. I, I was able to um, see some things looking at different populations of patients that that seem to kind of endorse that this might be a clinically rational thing. We know that from kind of a pharmacokinetic and and, and pathophysiologic standpoint, it it's biologically plausible. It makes sense. And I think anecdotally, I, I've seen that work. And and certainly my routine is to do exactly what Mark Kahn mentioned. I, I'm kind of a, a Monday, Wednesday, Friday guy. And I have not yet been disappointed uh, as far as its efficacy. But there there was a Cochrane review um, a couple years ago in 2015 that it, it looked at preventing iron deficiency in pregnant women. So this was not a treatment of iron deficiency, but they used um, intermittent iron two or three times weekly. Um, and, and that was pretty effective in, in their outcomes of, of preventing, you know, a lot of adverse outcomes in that population. So looking at pregnant women, there was an interesting trial uh, that was just published uh, this year. Again, a population that doesn't apply to us, but it's somewhat interesting. And the paper looked at the combination of weekly supplementation with iron and folate, along with twice week, uh, twice yearly albendazole to basically eradicate hookworm infection in a bunch of Vietnamese women of childbearing age. And, and that combo of the once weekly iron plus folate and the twice yearly albendazole pill worked great. Now, obviously... This is not Vietnam. We don't have a lot of hookworm <laughs> infestation. And, and one could argue that most of that beneficial effect might have been from the albendazole a couple of times a year. But again, I, I think it's rational. I've seen it work. Um, Dr. Khan's a lot smarter than you and me, and he seems to be a big fan. Um, and I, I guess I don't see a whole lot of downsides. You know, one thing, because I, I think if, if you want to, to try to adopt this into your clinical practice, um, you can you can do it and see what happens. Um, right. We we do. There is some evidence that um, you know. How do you know it works? Well, um, if you check a hemoglobin level in a couple of weeks, and there's an increase in the hemoglobin by one gram per deciliter, that's a pretty good marker 
that they're responding to the oral therapy that you're prescribing. And I, I think that would be pretty typical that a lot of us might see our patient. We're, you know, if someone's significantly anemic, we're not going to say see you back in six months. So what would it look like to give them uh, an iron pill plus a vitamin C pill Monday, Wednesday, Friday, have them come back in a couple of weeks and see if their hemoglobin went from nine to 10? If so, they're good to go. And I think that for for patients that I'm more concerned about, patients maybe with a history of a bypass surgery or oh, sure. certain sure. populations, um, like patients with heart, chronic heart failure, or chronic chronic kidney disease, maybe maybe those are the patients where you check at that one month to make sure you're getting yeah. the, that bump. Yeah, and certainly, um, you know, with people who have, um, you know, CKD, they really kind of fall out of the picture, right? Um, you know, a lot of those folks with advanced CKD4, CKD5, NSH renal disease, of course, a lot of those folks are getting, you know, parenteral iron supplementation. Mm-hmm. Um, we often try oral supplementation, but um, I think that that this idea of maybe the, you know, the thrice weekly or every other day, I don't think that would apply to your CKD population, you know, generally, for example, by the 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 the, the KDOKI and and the other guidelines, they have a much higher target ferritin level. You know, depending on whether you look at the international versus the U.S. guidelines, in your in your CKD five patients, they'll target a ferritin between three hundred and five hundred. Well. That, that wouldn't apply to a non-CKD patient. Right. Uh, so I think we're just talking about, you know, general folks who, you know, maybe have had a, a history of a couple of bleeding ulcers and they were postmenopausal and they never kind of got their bone marrow stores up again. For a patient like that, um, decreasing the pill burden and the drug-to-drug interaction and the adverse abdominal side effects I'm, I'm a huge fan. I, I see a lot of people who are very old and it's not unusual to see someone not taking, you know, 15, 20 pills. And, you know, why give someone an iron pill three times a day when you might be able to give them an iron pill three times a week? Just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And, and as, as my co-host Paul mentioned uh, last time we talked about this, he he was like, I guess the patients have been right because a lot of his patients were just taking it, taking right. it maybe maybe three times a week, something like that, just just because of tolerance. Right. Sometimes we we scare them off. You know, we tell them the importance of their TID iron, and they try it for a week or two, but it just it just blows them up. Yeah. And then they then they you know they they practically think they're allergic to it. So we might be shooting ourselves in the foot. It might be it might be nice to kind of limp into this one with the the intermittent dosing check them again in two or three weeks, see if they got a nice bump. And if so, they're on their way. I know that we're running short on time here. And I just wanted to ask you uh, just quickly, so maybe we can, you can give me your favorite, your favorite clinical pearl that you learned from cardiology. And and before you give me that, I'll let Mm. you know that you can, this can be kind of like a teaser for our audience because we will be doing an episode on heart failure. Oh, good. uh, In the next couple weeks here. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I think I will probably uh, give a nice segue to that that podcast then because you know, there, there was a bunch of things that Dr. Yancey mentioned and um, you're probably aware that fairly recently there was a, a focused update for heart failure management uh, that was released by the ACC, AHA, and Heart Failure Society. And and Dr. Yancey was the, the lead article, the lead author on that. Yes. He's He's the one who gave the meet the professor session on heart failure at the ACP meeting in San Diego. And, you know, there's a lot of things that have a niche, but 
I, I think we're 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 kind of seeing a potential sea change in you know our inhibition of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system and then and what we're talking about here is the the arni compound so the the angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor secubitril varsartan um, you know we've known about that for a few years uh, the paradigm heart failure trial showed that it was superior to enalapril in terms of total mortality uh, decreasing ER visits and hospitalizations for heart failure and improving quality of life, but it's expensive. Um, so last year, I know in 2016, I know of at least three different cost effectiveness analysis analyses that compared uh, secubitril vasartan to either enalapril or lisinopril, depends on the trial. And they all showed the same thing, which was the, the cost per quality adjusted life year came in at about forty-five to 50000 when you use secubitril valsartan. And, you know, in general, we, we kind of consider that a rather cost-effective intervention. And certainly the World Health Organization considers that to be a highly cost-effective number. And so now with this new focused update, um, you know, they put the ARNI compound as kind of a kind of a co-equal at one part of their table to ACEs and ARBs um, when you're starting someone out uh, f- with uh, systolic heart failure. But the new thing is, is they, they do have a class one recommendation that for patients with chronic, chronic uh, New York Heart Association class two or three heart failure who have been tolerating their ACE or ARB, that replacement by an ARNI is recommended to further reduce morbidity and mortality. And that probably, you know, stems from the paradigm trial and probably others that are underway. Um, I think the cost will be coming down, but the data is pretty clear that that's better than an ACE inhibitor. And it makes me think if, if I had heart failure with a reduced EF, you know, would I want to be started on my enalapril or lisinopril or would I want, you know, the ARNI compound? And, and I think it's pretty clear I'd, I'd go for the latter. And we're going to be talking with Dr. Eric Adler from uh, UC San Diego. He's a heart failure specialist, and we'll probably get under the hood of the Paradigm yeah, HF yeah. trial a little bit, and 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 talk talk through some of the nuances of these new newer guidelines. The update there were two there were guidelines in 2013 that were updated in 2017. So we'll we'll be going through those. All right, and be, before I let you go, I wanted to get some pearls on pulmonary. Uh, what, what did you learn? Anything, anything there that you think would be helpful to the audience? Yeah, I, I think the, the one thing I would highlight there is to know that vocal cord dysfunction is a thing and it's out there. And um, I've seen that before. I've missed that before. I'm trying to miss it less frequently, but I, but I know I still will because that can very much mimic, you know, someone coming into the office or the ED with what seems to be status asthmaticus. But, you know, a lot of folks that, that tend to have an asthma-like story induced by some type of an irritant, um, you know, as opposed to a URI or some other exposure, um, you really need to think about, could this be vocal cord dysfunction? Um, because those people need to be treated differently. They're, they're going to need the services of a speech pathologist. We want to try to avoid steroids in those people. Um, I, I think back to my residency where I am convinced uh, 
not knowing then that vocal cord dysfunction was a thing, I can think of one lady in particular that I, I know I made her Cushingoid with all the steroids I gave her. <laughs> and I was, I was just barking up the wrong tree. So, you know, that's that I come back to that story a lot. I share that with the residents, but, but I hurt that young lady. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure she had vocal cord dysfunction. So, so think about it. Um, if you see someone who's in the throes of status asthmaticus and their chest X-ray, for example, shows low lung volumes as opposed to a hyper expanded chest, which it should most certainly be for a, you know, an asthma exacerbation. Um, if those faint diffuse wheezes get louder and louder and louder as you march up towards the base of the neck or the trachea, um, that's probably vocal cord dysfunction. And, you know, call your, your favorite ENT physician assistant or ENT doc and have them come in and do a quick rhinoscopy. And they can, they can see that paradoxical motion of the vocal cord and sense your diagnosis right there. So, um, I, I think we can save the occasional patient some grief if we get that diagnosis right more often than not. I usually ask people for their take-home points, but since we talked about so many different, <laughs> so many different topics here, I don't, I don't know that that's that that would really make sense. So I was going to sure. ask you, any any recommendations or anything you'd like to plug that you'd like to leave our audience with? Well, I would. Uh... I guess I'm kind of speaking to the choir here. I'd like to plug your podcast. Um, this has been great. I'm going to try to spread the word around um, to our program and our students because I think this is a, a great way to pick up some high quality uh, uh, medical information. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been good stuff. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but none of them are medical until now. So uh, appreciate what, what uh, you and Stuart and Paul are doing. All right, sir. Uh, very good talking with you. Thanks for reaching out. Take care. Bye-bye. And we're back. Hi. That was quick. <laughs> that was very quick. Maybe too quick. Yes. Hmm. I Let's go back to Dr. Sweet. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, you before we get into the outro here, anything that I talked about with Dr. Sweet, Paul, that you wanted to highlight or, or recap for the audience? I, I mean, I thought all of it was great. I really, the, the tobacco cessation study, I, I think is, is really interesting and really directly applicable to, to something that we do on a daily basis. So this idea of tapering off versus abruptly quitting smoking and that abruptly quitting is better. Like it's always, it's made intuitive sense to me. I kind of think about it like trying to cut a piece of paper in half for forever, as opposed to just sort of being done, um, which now that I think back is probably a terrible metaphor. But in any case, I think it's probably as we've seen with our patients, it's hard to get the way to taper all the way down to zero. And so I think this, this paper adds evidence that, you know, what makes sense is actually the case that if, if you stop abruptly, you're much more likely to quit smoking. I think it's, it's helpful to actually have some evidence to, to coach our strategies on. So I, I like that part specifically. I do. I, I do have yeah. several patients that are on a perpetual taper. Absolutely. That, Every time I see them, they're like, I'm down to two cigarettes. I smoke them for two hours a day <laughs> <laughs> through. Well, and you go back to your progress notes and for the past two years, they've been down to two cigarettes and then you just wonder what you've really accomplished. Right. Which is actually, to be fair, better than a pack of cigarettes, but still. Stuart, any, yes. anything that you wanted to Absolutely. highlight here? I, I'm of sorry. I, by the way, for the audience, no, Stuart loves talking about yes. iron and very upset the about this. Irony of the fact that, <laughs> the irony of that, that, oh, that Stuart has oh, now missed, missed two discussions on iron is just, yeah. um, 
If I was a better person, He's I not. would feel bad. That's okay. <laughs> I, I, I understand. However, that's not the point I wanted to make because I, I'm going to leave the iron to the side for the time being. Um, it, it's actually the, uh, the misdiagnosis of cellulitis. So the, the, the article that was, that was alluded to, um, it actually says, so around 30% of, hosp- of patients that are hospitalized and diagnosed with cellulitis are found to have a diagnosis other than cellulitis. And, and from an attending standpoint... From my point of view, oftentimes I do find that my teams are are overdiagnosing. I, I, there was just recently I had a patient who had bilateral uh, metatarsal fractures, <laughs> and they were diagnosed <laughs> with cyclitis. How did I mean, they I, get? Bi- did they like drop a? Like- <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I, I, I saw the patient. It was, it was ob- like, I, I think a five-year-old could have made the diagnosis. It's like, oh, boo-boo. There's a big bruise there. And it, this is not like, it was, it, was, it was a really bad bruise, mind you. But uh, the, di- the, the team was treating the patient with Vank and Zosin overnight because oh it wasn't getting better. I was like, oh. yeah. Uh, another one that I had, really, really weird case. The patient had erythromyalgia. You guys probably have no idea what that is. But it's a sodium, ch- sodium channelopathy, and these patients dunk their feet in ice-cold water to help uh, alleviate the pain. And it typically presents, it looks like cellulitis, but it's bilateral lower extremities with significant uh, swelling and edema. Uh, it's treated best with mixilatine, or you can use other sodium channel blockers like phenytoin for this. But uh, this patient got admitted over and over and over again, was, again, vancanzosin, 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 and uh, got a derm biopsy when I came on, and, and lo and behold, uh, the diagnosis was, was actually erythromyalgia. It was a, an inheritable condition for this, this guy. And we put him on uh, initially mexilatine and phenytoin. But this guy got diagnosed multiple times, and he got antibiotics multiple times. So I, I, it actually doesn't surprise me that 30% of patients have a misdiagnosis of cellulitis. Yeah. And the, my big take-home point, which I said when I was talking with Dr. Sweet, is I, I had never thought to consult dermatology for an acute case of cellulitis like this, but it's it probably something that we should think of, especially if the person's already been on one or two courses of right. antibiotics. Well, y- y- right. I think we have to ask ourselves, too. Let's be a, a little bit uh, honest with ourselves that if we were to diagnose dermatology for a cellulitis, I think they would probably... I, I, I sense that there would be some, some eye-rolling. Well, I'll send them a picture of the uh, two, February 2017 right. article from JAMA Derm saying that they, sh- they want to be consulted on this. Exactly. Th- that's like, what I was going to say. Here, you can take it up with your colleague. I forget his name, but it's it says that uh, please, please consult <laughs> us for anything that involves skin. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I think the bigger picture is just don't let pattern recognition get in the way of diagnosis, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Two beefy, symmetric, hot legs. It's probably not well, slightly because why does that happen? Yeah, well, Paul, I actually think it's the opposite of pattern recognition. I think that they're relying way too much on on just the, these these macro patterns and not the actual patterns. I don't know if that makes sense or not. So they're saying, oh, it's red and swollen, must be cellulitis, instead of actually like putting together the history and the physical. Right. That's well said, Stuart. Yeah, you're welcome. I said it well. <laughs> now drop the mic and moonwalk out the door. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want to say anything about Entresto? It was... Well, in Tresto, we will be talking about that in depth in about a week or two here with Dr. Adler from UCSD and also going through the heart failure guidelines. I don't feel the need to to talk more about it now, but we'll we'll be kind of talking through talking through that then. So I think we should just go to the outro and uh Yeah, we can go from Entresto to outro. Okay. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders. That is correct. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Absolutely delicious. 
You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at no thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. When's the last time we mentioned an app? Yeah, we kind of drifted away from that. I think but we have, actually. It, yeah. just, it would throw me off not to say it. That's right. You can also sign up. You know what? Google Maps is fantastic. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Paul. Way to crowbar that. Sure, happy to help. Also, if they want to sponsor us, you know how to get a hold of us. How do they get a hold of us, Matt? Curbsiders at gmail.com. Wait, aren't they're, we signed up with the I'm pretty Google sure analytics. they're sending us targeted ads That's right, through we, that account. We have Google Analytics. <laughs> <laughs> you can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter, which I am still working on the format since uh, we have no Dr. Clue. Sweet told me it looked like I was in a uh, terrorist video. <laughs> oh, keep it that way. <laughs> Recording from my closet. <laughs> Uh, so we will be uh, we'll still be workshopping that I think maybe just Stuart's floating head <laughs> next time oh my gosh so, well I'm, I'm putting up a green screen in my office yes I can't wait yes. so the video newsletter is where we summarize the key tools tips and tricks for your practice that we learn each month so you can get that at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food that's right and finally we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And, and I remain Paul Williams. Good night. Oh, there you are, Paul. We can hear you now. Hi.